Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we talk about the latest updates from the front lines, analyse the Ukrainian counterattack near Kharkiv, and discuss the latest on the diplomatic front as Finland and Sweden edge closer to NATO membership. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 16th of May, day 82. And today, I'm joined by The Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, and Mutaz Ahmed from our comment team. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from Ukraine. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. Uh, the big news over the weekend was not necessarily from the front line. It was that Finland has, has finally uh, said it will apply for NATO membership. Sweden making very, very similar noises, yet to totally confirm. But Sweden expected to follow in, uh, in due course. We'll be talking about that a little bit later, I have no doubt. Uh, but over the weekend, so we, we have uh, Belarusian forces are uh, continuing their series of exercises. They're on the border with Ukraine. They've pushed... Um, as well as, as well as the exercises there, they've pushed air defence artillery and missile units into training areas to the west of the country. The defence intelligence estimate from um, Britain's MOD says that this is just a continuation of those Belarusian exercises, but it will fix Ukrainian troops in the, in the area of, of um, uh, just north of Kiev and, and north of, uh, of the country, um, just in case the exercise turns into anything else or acts as a launch pad for any other Russian action there. Um, it, it's assessed that this is likely, or Lukashenko, President Lukashenko of Belarus, is uh, he's got a delicate balance, balancing act here. He's got to show a little bit of support uh, for the Russian invasion, but not too much. He wants to avoid direct military participation uh, that bring on Western sanctions. Uh, he also doesn't want to invite any Ukrainian retaliation, um, and he doesn't want to uh, sort of start any um, a dissatisfaction in the Belarusian military. So so exercises as expected, but but with a lot more, a, a very a, a few nuances in there. Uh, also over the weekend, MOD Defence Intelligence say that Russia's forces in Ukraine have lost a third of the troops and equipment that they, they went into 
Ukraine with on February the 24th. That's up from 25% last month. So, I mean, these are really significant numbers you are close to. In a, in a normal setting, this would, this would, this would, a force would culminate at this point, i.e. be no longer able to, to conduct offensive operations. I mean, these are just huge numbers. Uh, we have seen that in some areas. So the, um, the, move, the pressure, those, those local counterattacks to the north and northeast of Kharkiv that Ukrainian forces are able to knit together have turned into a, a larger operational push. There are images on social media of Ukrainian troops up to and on the border with Russia. They took their own border post. They sort of they were pushing this this massive metal, uh, sorry, a wooden post into the into the soil to mark the border with Russia. So, so to have Ukrainian troops up to the border with Russia is just it's quite startling, to be honest. They've now got a choice to make because they are they're able to affect uh, Russian resupply down through Belgorod. It's so about about 30, 40 k's north in, in Russia proper. Uh, but if they start shelling that, for example, then they would invite... Um, well, firstly, it would validate Putin's, Putin's reason for going into Ukraine. He would say that there's this, there is an external threat if they're now, if they're now shelling Belgorod. Uh, there would undoubtedly be civilian casualties, which would undermine President Zelensky's position and could, uh, could see a few fractures in the Western alliance. So unlikely Ukrainian troops, regular troops, will go any further over the Russian border, but it does mean that they can now push east. I imagine they would need some some period of reconstitution, certainly uh, rest, but they could push east to, to, to degrade those uh, supply lines coming down south uh, through Russia. And I'll just take a pause there. Thanks, Tom. Mutas, do you have anything to add on that? I think Dom's covered most of it, but just to hammer, hammer home the point, I think I think the theme over the weekend has been of Russian failure, militarily, diplomatically, geostrategically. Right, they're they're failing on all fronts. Um, militarily, you know, one third of their troops lost, um, uh, the troops that they 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 positioned lost. Uh, diplomatically, increasingly, they're losing the likes of Israel, which was seen as an important middle power in this. Uh, and and geo strategically, um, as Dom mentioned, Finland and Sweden joining NATO was something that was unthinkable uh, even a year ago, um, even six months ago, um, and it's now very close to fruition. So it's it's these are astonishing uh, developments. Thank you very much, Mutaz. Um, Dom Nichols, there was an interesting thing in the Telegraph today about how the Ukrainians intentionally flooded a small village north of Kiev, um, which people believe prevented an attack on the capital. Um, can you tell us about this? What, what happened? Why did they do it? And what was the impact? This is the village of Demidiv. It's uh, to the north of Kiev on the Irpin River. And the suggestion was that the Ukrainians took the, took the strategic decision very, very early in the war. In fact, probably they t- took the decision probably before Russia had actually uh, crossed the border, that this is what they would do. So Kiev is very, a very short distance from the Russian border and the Belarusian border down to Kiev. So that's always going to be a very vulnerable flank. So uh, working with the weather at the time, in order to force Russia onto the paved surfaces, which not only channels their forces, but also you, you clearly know where they are, um, they took the decision to flood the area uh, around uh, the Demidiv village. Now, this did result in in significant disruption to the to the local civilian population. It, it not only meant that they couldn't couldn't work the countryside, but also it flooded homes and basements. So there there was there was uh, an effect there uh, on their own people. However, 
um, villagers in Demidiv, as we ha- as we say today in the in the report in the paper and online, uh, they said it was a sacrifice worth worth making. Um, this did, as we saw, contribute to Russia having to channel the forces down very known, very obvious routes. We saw that 40-mile-long convoy north of Kiev sat there for days, slowly being attacked, nibbled away by uh, uh, by Ukrainian anti-tank teams. So this was a, a significant undertaking and a significant decision, but it looks as if it, it did work and it contributed in no small part to the defence of, of Kyiv. Thanks, Tom. And there's also an incredibly harrowing news that uh, we've discovered, so, well, this claims that 650 more victims have been executed by Russian soldiers in the Bucha region. Um, this is uh, a local official telling the BBC. Can we talk about that? What, what more has been discovered? I mean, it's a, it's a horrible story. In terms of what more has been discovered, I'm afraid it's just numbers. We knew from the early days of when Russia pulled out from Bucha, Bucha being the northern suburb or, or one of the one of the suburbs of Kiev, just to the north of Kiev, um, there there are there's I mean I've, I qualify the the use of the word evidence because it you know, clearly has a legal meaning, but there there are um, further allegations of atrocities against civilians. Um, there's uh, both in terms of the numbers of dead, but also also the means of their deaths and the weapons used that, that would have no. Um, there'd be no no need to use those weapons near a civilian population. So there are a number of investigations on ongoing. Um, the UN Human Rights Council is going to investigate. Uh, we need to allow these people time and space to to make their own deductions so that these any findings are sound. There should be no no clamour for for quick and easy answers because that will not bring justice. But this, as we saw weeks ago, and we discussed weeks ago. This this just does show, or seems to show, the the brutality of of some of the Russian units. Now we've we've carried stories in the paper about how some civilians were sorry some yes some Ukrainian civilians recounted to Russian troops what had happened to them uh, by units that had previously moved through their villages and and had been and had met with compassion. So we're not saying this is every single Russian soldier all of the time. This seems to have been a complete breakdown in leadership in in quite sizable numbers of of units. But I don't I don't want to suggest that it's that it was every single Russian all of the time. Um, but yes, there does seem to be some fairly grim um, evidence coming out from the uh, from the area of Butcher. Mutaz, would you like to come in on that? It it, it is just it's horrific, and I'm afraid we're probably going to see and hear more of it um as as the russians withdraw from 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 more more parts of ukraine um and it needs to be investigated of course uh thankfully uh there's more sort of technology and effort and innovation going into collecting the evidence in ukraine and and archiving it than we've seen practically anywhere else in the world so there will be some form of justice um uh, and hopefully sooner rather than later. Can we turn our attention to the south of Ukraine? Um, Ukraine has accused Russia, this is on Sunday, of dropping phosphorus bombs on the Azov-style steelworks. Um, what what happened there? And Dominicals, would you tell us a, li- a little bit about phosphorus bombs? What, how exactly do they work? So phosphorus bombs are used for a number of different 
military applications. I mean, they 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 create they're, they're full of very small little thermite. Uh, capsules, if you like, very small sort of chunks, almost sort of sugar cube size, size chunks of thermite that burn at an intense heat. I mean, thousands of degrees centigrade. So incendiary bombs, which are normally made of phosphorus, but there are other chemical compounds as well. These are designed to um, set things on fire, basically, or um, uh, if they land on an electricity substation, for example, they'll do more than that. They'll probably, the whole thing, short circuit and, and, uh, and be destroyed. But they are essentially... Uh, incendiary devices to to create fires. Now, white phosphorus, which is um, a, another derivative, um, is used by Russia and the West. We use it as well for smoke. Uh, as soon as it's in contact with with the air, it burns again, burns at an extremely hot temperature. I mean, again, thousands of degrees centigrade, but gives off huge plumes of very thick white smoke. And we use white phosphorus, as the Russians do, to create smoke screens. So you'll see on the front of tanks and many armoured vehicles, these tiny little tubes, maybe about 10 inches long or so, three or four inches wide, um, pointing in a number of different directions. So they are the smoke dischargers. And what would happen is, certainly in our doctrine, if, you are, if you're in an armoured vehicle and you come under attack, the first thing that happens is that the commander will, will press the buttons for the smoke dischargers, which will blast these, these things out. And they fly to about 10 metres or so in front of the vehicle and then explode, creating this enormous, thick plume of white, white smoke. At the same time, the driver will be selecting reverse and, and getting out there as fast as possible. So we use white phosphorus for, for um, camouflage and concealment. And in that regard, it is perfectly legal to use. It is not legal to use white phosphorus or any um, such weapons in an anti-personnel role. Um, and certainly not in civilian areas. Now, the the important thing about the, to differentiate between incendiary bombs and uh, white phosphorus is that that we we were known, as I say, the Western forces were known that the first thing a, a vehicle would do, a tank would do, would be to hit the hit the smoke dischargers and create this smoke screen. And Russia uh, or the Soviet Union, as as was, uh, always said that they they had no first use policy of chemical weapons but they counted white phosphorus as a chemical weapon now we would never use white phosphorus in an anti-personnel role but there was always the um we always suspected that that they would use chemical weapons claiming that we'd use them first in 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 these uh, for camouflage and concealment so that's white phosphorus now it doesn't look like these these images that we see from the azov style plant in mariupol these images of of devices exploding hundreds of feet above the uh, steel plant and then raining down this shower of sparks basically it's in daylight so there'll be a completely different picture at night but but by daylight we see these sparks showering down they then explode when they hit the ground in very very small explosions but they 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 do create a, a big flash when they when they each land on the ground so that's why we we do not think that these are white phosphorus munitions that russia has used as of style rather incendiary devices which is another type of phosphorus so in and of itself, we are not, we're not suggesting, we the Telegraph are not suggesting this is a war crime. There were no troops out in the open. There were no um, Ukrainian troops. They're all undercover, as we've discussed for weeks now. So the use of these munitions, um, you, can, you can argue, well, what, what, does it, what does it do? What is it going to do if, if no one's there? And actually, it's a, it's a busted up steel plant. So these things are, they didn't cause any fires, to, to be perfectly honest. There was a few flashes when they landed, but nothing, uh, there was no great destruction. So... 
you can argue what was it for, but we are not suggesting that this was this was a war crime. It's still a pretty horrendous weapon. Um, and as I say, there's absolutely no reason for it to be fired near civilians. And we know that there are civilians in the Azovstal plant, albeit underground. But we just need to be careful when you look at these very striking images. And uh, very early on, there are a number of people coming out saying white phosphorus, which, it, which I'm pretty certain it was not. Uh, but then taking the next step and saying well, war crime, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I'm, I'm suggesting it, is, it was not a war crime because I do not think it was white phosphorus, but we just need to be careful about what we are talking about and the implications thereof. But they are very striking images which you can, you can find on our website and, and pretty much all across, uh, across other media as well. So, so Russia, there were reports um, of, pretty credible reports of white phosphorus being used in Syria, which Russia was, was involved in, which, which might help sort of explain why so many people are braced for this, you know, why people are so ready to accuse Russia of using white phosphorus. Um, It was used, according to credible reports in Syria. Um, Phosphorus is in a sort of grey space legally. It's a bit problematic because it's not classed as a chemical weapon under the Chemical Weapons Convention. And so, you know, you can't, you can't really call it a, a chemical weapon. But but if you look at the effect it has, it kills people indiscriminately and it it kills people through fire. Um, it, it works rather similarly to chemical weapons um, and yet it's in this legal sort of grey zone, um, which is why perhaps it's, it's, it's such a convenient tool to use if you are a, a nasty sort of... Uh, uh, large power conducting indiscriminate attacks. I'm not suggesting Russia has used it in Ukraine, but it it has been used in countries where there's where there where there's no regard regard for civilian casualties. Well, f- thank you very much, Dom, for the detail and details for the context there. Um, Dom, you started we started this podcast talking about Sweden and Finland um, announcing the intention to join NATO. Can you t- let, let's go in Mitas and Dom? Let's go into detail on that. I, I mean, I'd be sp- quite interested to know what what has Russia done and also considering how much how many of their forces are now deployed in Ukraine and looking towards looking towards Ukraine what what can they actually do well I think you hit the nail on the head there what what can they do that was the that was re- the reaction I got from Ben Wallace the defense secretary when we were in Finland a couple of weeks ago uh, talking about this I mean Russia have Russia has has made very belligerent comments in in response to the news from from Finland, and they said it will not add to security in Europe. It's a mistake. There'll be repercussions, um, so on and so forth. I mean, we've we've heard this before. We've heard these threats before. Um, Russia has struggled to get across a river in eastern Ukraine, so invading Finland is unlikely to be a realistic prospect in the near future. Um, of course, the. The problem all along here, as we as we've seen, the very, the markedly different operational um, effort from Russia than than we'd have been expecting, is that um, it's got nuclear weapons. So so what can it do? Not a lot. If it if it if it keeps talking in a, in such a belligerent manner, that's that's not a good thing necessarily. Well, not a good thing at all because because Russia does have have nuclear weapons and is very keen to keep talking about them and sort of rattling the rattling the nuclear sabre. So, so no, Russia will, will not be able to do anything about um, the Finland and Sweden hopes for joining NATO. 
uh, they will paint this as NATO encroachment, NATO, no, NATO expansion up to the borders. They will in no way entertain the idea that this is a, a sensible or a, a sovereign decision by those two countries in light of their own um, security concerns and the changing security, security architecture in, in Europe. Um, so it will be... I expect some more bellicose language out of Russia in the next few days. Certainly, we should expect some more when, when, if and when Sweden make their announcement, expected imminently. Um, so there should be some more fire-breathing rhetoric from Moscow on that front. But actually, what what can they do? Shorter diplomacy, and there's not an awful lot of that left uh, between Russia and the West. Uh, not not a huge amount. We can talk. Uh, just let Mutas. I'm sure he's got a few uh, views here, but we'll, I'll let Mutas come in. Then there, there are wider wider implications of uh, Finland and Sweden's accession to NATO. But I'll just pause there. Yeah, it's it's a pretty, this is a pretty savvy move by both countries. You know, if they'd made this move any time before the invasion of Ukraine, it was conceivable that Russia could take action to re-neutralise them and uh, that Russia could, you know, militarily stop it. And so any time before the invasion of Ukraine, both sides, both NATO and Sweden and Finland, would have rejected such an idea because they wouldn't have wouldn't have wanted a to be seen as uh, uh, provoking Russia and b they wouldn't have wanted to take such a risk. Right? Russia has now, as as Dom said, um, ha- has now convened so many resources and so many troops in Ukraine, uh, uh, and and they uh, and those resources are in such a disastrous state that it's not it's no longer con- conceivable that Russia can do really anything in terms of the battlefield, in terms of traditional warfare, to stop this from happening. Um, uh, the nuclear threats so far have been bluster, and frankly, if these countries are going to give in to the nuclear threats, then they've surrendered their sovereignty. There's no point after that. Um, but there is... A, a, Russia can still do something, and the you know both Sweden and Finland are now gearing up for cyber attacks you know uh for nasty sort of espionage we know that Russia uh, has been pretty brazen with its spies and conducting assassinations and so on in foreign countries including on UK, UK soil so there'll be some of that it's unfortunate that there you know Sweden and Finland during the application process will not have NATO protections so NATO um, countries, when a NATO country comes under serious cyber attack, you can actually trigger Article 5. You know, there are protections in NATO to, um, uh, to discourage Russia from conducting too serious a cyber attack, you know, the kind of cyber attack that, that destabilizes a country. Sweden and Finland won't have those protections. So that, that's still quite risky. Uh, we've seen talk of uh, Britain and uh, perhaps America providing security get guarantees, but I doubt that even those would cover the cyberspace. So that's something to watch out for. But the, the other thing I wanted to, to mention was that we talk about this as if this is NATO doing Sweden and Finland a favour. You know, in some ways it is. Their security will be beefed up by joining NATO. But these two countries will be security contributors. You know, they're not like Belgium. They are 
very skillful countries militarily. They're very good at using the resources they have. They can teach NATO. They can teach us, the UK, France, Germany, a hell of a lot about mobilisation. You know, you look at Finland and, and their ability to rapidly mobilise. They can teach us a hell of a lot about coastal defence. Um, they use their intelligence very effectively. And so these countries are going to add to NATO's might as well as the other way around. Um, and that, that's a very, very important thing to note. So this is good news in, in terms of sort of just pure logistics and, you know, uh, military uh, uh, cooperation. It's good news for the whole of Europe and, and, and even uh, Canada and America. Uh, just a couple of other points, if I, if I may, and, and Mutaz will be really interested in your, in your view here. Um, firstly, the, the, just the physical act of, of Sweden and Finland joining, coming the 31st, 32nd members of, of NATO. Um, yeah, I, think that's, I think that's a good thing, and I think they've, they are entirely sovereign. They've made their own decisions. They've not been in any way cajoled by, by the West. However, and I do think, as you've said, they will be a net, contribute, net contributors of defence to the, to the alliance. Um, but for the alliance, 30 members as, as are at the moment, for all the, the one member, one vote, which is lovely, um, of course, if the US didn't want something to happen, it wouldn't happen. And all this diplomacy would have happened months and months and months ago. Um, possibly Ben Wallace's visit to, to the Pentagon last week was the final, the final just, just making sure US were happy with this, although I think that's probably a little bit too late. But the, the point is that... I think the US would be very happy with this, not only because it's it's more members of the club, and as you say, Sweden and Finland have very capable militaries, um, and Finland's got yeah you know, they've been eyeball to eyeball with the with the bear for forever, so yeah, a lot to offer. But also, what it does do is this is going to allow America to um, take the foot off the gas is probably a bit a bit too strong, but the more Europe steps up for its own regional security concerns, the more it allows the US to focus on what they see as the, as the biggie out there. Um, MI5 Director General gave a speech, his first speech, and he said that Russia is Russia is, the, uh, is, is a storm in terms of international security, it's a storm, but China is the weather. So I think, I think this is where we will see that come out to play. So the more Europe is able to step up and look after its own regional security concerns, the more the US will then be able to focus on China. Uh, I'll be interested in, in, um, in Mutaz's uh, view of that. Uh, just pause there. Yep, that, that's completely right. And and Washington is very interested um, and, and has been sort of extremely interested ever, really ever since um, the end of the, the Obama era, uh, era and through the Trump era. And now during the Biden era, it's been the one key continuation in terms of foreign policy. They're very eager to get Europe to step up. Um, and to get NATO countries to pay more. Um, and, you know, expanding NATO in Europe will, of course, help that. America, you know, we know it's a massive country. It has a huge military, but it, it believes that it only has the capabilities to fight on two fronts at the same time. You know, it, it, it can only fight in two theatres. Um, and so there is a risk that if, God forbid, World War Three were to start, you know, America is more likely to focus on what it sees as closer to home, which unfortunately isn't Europe. It's the Pacific region. Um, it, it will focus on South America. It might it might have to focus on the Middle East or Africa, and Europe Europe may have to fight on its own. Or you know that that's the doomsday scenario. So 
it's good for everyone in the West if Europe has the capabilities to to look after itself. Uh, but, but you know, Europe has to answer to the question. You know, the, the, we saw over the weekend some tension between um, the traditional NATO powers and Turkey over Sweden and Finland joining. And that was just an, just another example of Europe still hasn't got its act together in terms of its its strategy, right? If Europe is going to be strategically autonomous and if the continent is going to be able to sort of look after its own backyard, it needs Turkey, um, not least because you need um, that uh, um, strategic uh, advantage in the Black Sea to confront Russia. We've seen... Uh, the effect Turkey's had in terms of um, the, um, closing uh, the the uh, the the, um, the straits into uh, the Black Sea, uh, the Bosphorus Straits, the effect that has had on the Russian navy, um, Turkey didn't have to do that. So you need Turkey, and it's still not sorted. And so, what Finland and Sweden joining, if they do join, is going to do is it's going to force us to confront the question of Turkey. How do you deal with Turkey? Turkey's been half in, half out for the last few years. It has been a member of NATO, but it's purchased Russian missile defence systems. It's not too happy with Russia, not least because of the way Russia treats uh, the Tatar population, um, uh, which Erdogan considers himself to you know, have some responsibility over. Um, uh, but Turkey's not entirely confident with the West either. There's an opportunity now for the West to welcome Turkey in, to convince Turkey to become a full-on 100% NATO power. And it's going to be tricky and it will take some compromise. And, you know, uh, many Kurdish political parties and Kurdish people might not be happy with that suggestion. And, you know, some human rights activists might not, not, might not be happy with it. But if Europe is serious about its strategic autonomy, it needs Turkey. So that's another question. You know, uh, uh, Finland and Sweden is great, but there are big black holes still left to fill to answer if if Europe is going to actually defend its backyard. And I imagine that there are people in Washington, you know, uh, talking to London and Paris and Berlin about Turkey, this this key question that now needs to be answer, uh, answered now that we have um, potentially Sweden and Finland uh, in the fold too. Yeah, and this... Um goes back to Donald Rumsfeld. You may remember oh, crikey, 10, 15 years ago, Donald Rumsfeld was talking about this when, when the Baltic states and Poland uh, joined NATO. Um, Donald Rumsfeld was, was talking in fairly disparaging terms about uh, France and Germany uh, and saying how the central gravity of NATO is shifting to the east with the Baltics. Um, and he was sort of pick, picked up on that and said, well, hang on, what about the, you know, the, the powerhouse, the economic powerhouse in, in Europe, Germany and, and France, huge militarily, P5 member, et cetera, et cetera. And Donald Rumsfeld said, oh, yes, well, that, that's, that's the old Europe. He was talking about the new Europe. And then he, got, he started his debate about what, what's, what's old Europe, what's new Europe. But I wonder if we're about to see that in, in NATO. If, uh, I mean, there, there have been questions to, uh, to, to be answered about um, certainly Germany and to a lesser extent France's performance over over the war in Ukraine so far um, with 
the if, if Sweden and Finland do join, you've got the so the Nordic bloc, you've got the Baltic bloc. I just wonder if this if we are seeing this this Rumsfeldian move towards a, a new Europe that also has to, to accommodate the, the all the issues you described there, Mutez, about about Turkey. But I I wonder if if France and Germany are are in danger here of being of being a pace behind. I'm not saying they're they're backtracking at all, but a, a pace behind momentum in where where European security is going. I'd be interested in your thoughts. They they are behind and 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 everyone sees it, uh, but they they don't really have an option because uh, through this NATO infrastructure, um, uh, 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 you've seen unity between the UK, which has just left the European Union, and. Eastern European nations who are members of the European Union, lots of unity between the UK and the Netherlands. Uh, you've seen uh, the UK signing pacts with um, uh, Sweden and Finland. You know, uh, this cross-European uh, cooperation is occurring, and it's occurring around France and Germany. And they, you know, they will soon find themselves in a position where. If they wish to lead Europe, which they, which they do, and if if they wish to maintain unity within the EU as well as NATO, they're going to have to go along with it. You know, they they won't have an option. Um, uh, and and you know, Macron can talk about his strategy for an EU army or EU defence or whatever. But the world is moving, the world is moving around them. Um, and look how far, and that's thanks to NATO. Um, without that infrastructure, we wouldn't be seeing this. And look how far NATO has come since, I don't know, since 2016. You know, a few years ago, Macron was talking about NATO being brain dead. And he was right. It, it seemed that NATO had no purpose, um, uh, apart from conducting military exercises every now and again. Russia, by invading Ukraine, has revitalized this organization. It's given it a purpose perhaps the next 50 years, uh, it's united it more than ever and it's allowed new members to to join. There's there's some real excitement about what NATO can do now in terms of bringing Europe together and, 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 and you know, not provoking people, but making sure Europe can be safe going forward. Um, so NATO's come a hell of a long, long way. And if, 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 if France and Germany have aspirations to lead the continent, again, which they do, they don't really have an option. Um, um, and they've made a big mistake, actually, by being so behind and not not joining the UK and America and and the likes of Poland, even in 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 being at the forefront of this this new movement now in Europe for European defence. Thank you, Mises, and thank you, Dom. Before we go to our uh, your final thoughts and just looking to the week ahead, um, I think we need to talk about another um, Ukrainian victory. This came on Saturday night. Um, Dom and Mises, were you watching Eurovision? I was actually. After all the grief I got on Friday, um, I was I was watching. I mean, I I said I didn't understand it because I mean I still don't understand why Australia is in Eurovision or Israel. So I don't understand that. I don't understand the public vote, but um, but I, I, do, I do enjoy it, and I and I did watch it, and I was uh, yeah I was cheering for for uh, yeah well Moldo- Moldova and Norway, the wolf and the banana. I mean it's just genius, uh, and obviously Spain for the um, for the uh, for the for the lighting and the chord progressions. Uh, I I didn't watch it. I didn't watch it. I I don't understand why we don't put up, you know, top artists like Adele, you know, the best talent we have. Why why do Sam Rowe came second though? He came second. He did very well. Yeah, but they they they're all sort of quiche, you know, TikTokers. Um, anyway, I didn't watch it, but I was I was glad Ukraine won and 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 that yeah. 
yeah, yeah. It, it was quite political, but but it was good. It's good to see. There was a Ukraine uh, UK one two there, and I just thought it'd be interesting to note that the uh, the frontman of the Ukrainian uh, act Kalush Orchestra has already gone back to Ukraine and joined um, in the defence of his um, of his country. Um, do we have a sense of how what what did this win show us about about Europe and about public opinion? I mean, I think it's obvious, but it's worth, it's worth saying, especially for our foreign foreign audience here. Well, I think as as um, as Sam Ryder, the UK. Uh, uh, nominee said, and we've got a story in, in today's paper, I mean, he said this has gone back to what Eurovision was supposed to be about, which is about unity and friendship and love and, 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 and what have you. Um, I mean, it, it has been nakedly, I mean, it is a nakedly political act, but then you know, what isn't really these days, I've got no, no huge problem with that. Um, I mean, it, 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 there was very little rancour in the, in the run-up to it, um, and the, the the widely held view that that Ukraine was going to win the popular vote um, because of the war, uh, so so yeah, I think it, I think it speaks of a of a certain unity. I don't think I think you could read read too much into it by saying you know, France and Germany came last and UK and Ukraine came first and second. Um, yeah, you could there's there's too much you can, you can read into this. I think you just you should just enjoy it for, for for what it is. I mean, what I can't work out if the hosts are supposed to be really bad, and that's and that's good. Or if it's just bad that they're really bad, I just don't. I just don't understand it. But I will watch again next year. Thanks, Peter, and thanks, Tom. And just a note from me, actually, if you're listening, that uh, we spoke to the Ukrainian commentator for Eurovision um, last week, and the interview for that is in Friday's episode. So you can hear Tima Miroshnichenko, uh, who was broadcasting from a bomb shelter. Uh, we interviewed him. It's the last episode in this podcast series. Do go and listen to that. He told us all about uh, his life during the war and the experience of broadcasting and being a journalist um, in Ukraine at the moment. Uh, so, yes, congratulations to Ukraine for taking the win. Um, so, Mises and Dom, can I have your final thoughts? What should we be looking for uh, in, in the week to come? Well, I think from the ground, for the last few days, I've been saying keep an eye on northeast and southwest, northeast being around uh, Kharkiv. I think there's a pause there now. I don't think Ukraine will be immediately able to go onto onto a large-scale offensive to try and cut into those supply lines. I think that will come. So maintain the focus on the southwest. That was Snake Island. Uh, Russia has to hold Snake Island if it wants to have any kind of meaningful impact on the uh, southwest coast of Ukraine. Uh, and equally, if Ukraine holds Snake Island, then it just, just takes that option away from, from Russia. So keep it on the, on the southwest. Also in the centre of the, of the Donbass, around um, uh, Severodonetsk. Uh, so this idea that Originally, this push, Russian push in the Donbass was going to be some massive encircling operation to, to go south from Kharkiv, north from Mariupol and to cut off the, uh, um, those sort of 10 brigades, as we, as we still think, 10 Ukrainian brigades in there. That, that now seems to be utterly hopeless. Um, it looks like they might try and do a smaller encirclement around the town of Severodonetsk. But I mean, they are having huge problems just just in that small encirclement. But but that that is where their their effort is. So I'd keep your eye on that, and also continue to look at Snake Island. Thanks, Tom. Mutas, would you like the final words? Yes, I I'd be watching, uh, uh, waiting for a formal sort of application from Finland at least to join NATO. It's an incredibly exciting moment. Um, um, uh, maybe excitement's the wrong word, but it's it's a positive moment for Finland and for NATO. Um, and it's a hopeful moment that, that in the face of this threat from an overbearing power, these two small countries um, are, are willing to, to sort of 
tell this 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 big power doing wrong to go stuff itself um, and to join a, a European defence um, system. Um, and if that's too hopeful, I'd also uh, keep an eye on the EU and, and where they go with the oil embargo on Russia, because those efforts look to have stalled, thanks to Hungary. Um, and so those are, uh, those are the two sides of, the, of, of how Europe is doing at the moment. On the one hand, you've got enormous progress, and on the other, uh, you've got uh, increasing disunity and, 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 um, and, and stalling, um, which isn't so great. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Freya Graham. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.